welcome to the Out of Limits of Truth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. This is part eight of the Death Show. What I'm about to say right now is probably going to make some people upset, but I'm going to say it anyway. I've been to several funerals, and during the times of these funerals, I've watched people, the person who's conducting the funeral, get up and say, this is what happens when you die. This is all about life. This is all about death. Acting like they've had a first-hand experience with it, and they haven't. If you haven't been dead, why should anyone believe you and assume that you're a credible person who's an expert on death? It's the same thing as if you're married and a single person walks up to you and tries to give you some insight on marriage when they've just read about it in books or they've watched some movies about marriage. No, you have to have first-hand experience. When you don't let a surgeon operate on you unless they've had first-hand experience. If they said they read it in a book, why should you give them the credibility? The next couple episodes of The Death Show are going to focus on people who've had near-death experiences. And if you think dying and coming back has been delegated to one historical figure, you're wrong. According to the Near-Death Research Foundation, Dr. Jeffrey Long, who we're going to have on our show, there have been over 4,000 cases of people who've died, come back and told their stories. And some of these stories are going to blow you away. I mean, at least they're going to... They, they, I found it personally fascinating. One of the most profound insights is that apparently when you die, it's the greatest thing that can happen to you. Is it strange? Think about death in the world. It's a horrible, horrible event but for the people. Apparently, they, they, it's amazing. They go to this beautiful place. And best thing is that none of the people who we've talked to who've had near-death experiences report their being members of Congress there. They don't exist in where they go. You hear that? Congress doesn't make it into heaven. You should be thrilled about that. <laughs> Let us begin this portion of the show. We have over 15 people who are going to tell their stories. Joining us now is Dr. Jeffrey Long, a physician practicing in the specialty of radiation oncology in Houma, Louisiana. Dr. Long has served on the board of directors of International Association for Near-Death Studies. He's actively involved in, in near-death experience research He's also the creator of the page called the NDERF homepage, nderf.org. You're going to find a ton of near-death experience stories. We're going to directly link to it on our site. Dr. Long, thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So from a medical perspective, apparently you guys are rooted in science. Do you believe in the presence of an afterlife? Do you believe that there are things, experiences that people have that cannot be explained through science? I absolutely do. I absolutely believe that based on evidence, there is an afterlife. And that's a strong statement, but we can explore that as time goes on here. I feel very strongly about that. Okay. And if you go to the nderf.org website, you have so many near-death experience counts. What are some of the most unique near-death experiences that you've ever come across, ones that have really stood out in your mind? Oh, gosh, there, there are so many of them, it's, it's hard to really pick and choose. You see, we have over 4,000 near-death experiences posted on the website, which is by far the largest publicly accessible database of near-death experiences on the planet. So that's what I use for research, and so because I have so many to research, that's allowed me to be more confident in my conclusions than was ever possible before. But if you had to pick 
like one or several that just really stuck out. I mean, one that I, I think about uh, every now and then is when I interviewed a lady born totally blind, one in whom vision is unknown and unknowable, and yet when she had her near-death experience, it was stunningly and highly detailed uh, in the vision that she saw, and that's absolutely medically inexplicable. Oh, it's, it's pretty amazing. And have you ever come across any where people presented to you some predictions about what was going to happen in the world that actually came true or predictions that have been common as far as what was going to happen? You know, that's interesting. We have, we ask a very direct question in our survey. Every person that shares their near-death experience, nearly all of them, fill out a very detailed questionnaire. One of them is a question where we directly ask about future events. Now, that's a little bit murky. I think, as best I can tell from my review of scores and scores of these experiences, People can be aware of what could happen in the future. However, their visions are not necessarily in stone. In other words, a lot of what they see in the future, a future of their own personal life, of the life of people around them in the world, seem to be modifiable by decisions that we can make in the here and now. But we've seen some stunningly detailed visions uh, that people have seen about the future. Is there anything like really positive? Because we've had a lot, we've had actually some that, that have seen the future as being I don't know dark apocalyptic. They have any visions where there's going to be a cure for baldness and everyone's <laughs> going to have tons of money and we're all going to look very sexy and good. Yeah, boy, I wish that would happen here. Uh, unfortunately, oh, gotta be hopeful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we can all well, hope springs eternal. I think that you know it's time to to point that out as we go along here. But really, I think the bottom line is. The, there's no no absolute future vision that's absolutely fixed in, to, in stone. I think, um, as I said, uh, people, for example, some people when they're making in their near-death experience, they're given a decision or about returning to their earthly life or not. Now, most people at that point of decision don't want to leave that blissful heavenly realm they're in, and sometimes they're shown visions of what their funeral would be like. And there's their friends, family, loved ones, children at their own funeral. Now, the funeral is not going to happen because they're going to choose to return to their earthly life, so it won't happen. So, again, you have to take a little bit of a grain of salt with these future visions. They aren't necessarily definitely going to happen. And that's especially true for apocalyptic visions. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So there's then all visions that come up are going to be apocalyptic I'm going to ask the questions that uh, our listeners are probably uh, wanting me to ask, which would be some of the ones that are actually found on your website. Some sure. people will say, okay, you know what? There's no near-death experience. You're having a hallucination. This is all within your mind. Are near-death experiences caused by hallucinations? That's laughable. I'm a medical physician, and I've seen lots of people that have hallucinations. Hallucinations are unreal experiences. They tend to be frightening. They tend to skip around a lot in terms of the sequence of events like dreams. And people, when they recover from their hallucination, generally recognize the experience was hallucinatory, not real. None of that applies to near-death experiences. The events that occur in a near-death experience are essentially always logical, sequential events. Uh, when they finish their experience, they typically come away saying that their experience was more real than real and more real than anything they've had in their earthly life. And as time goes on, when they have time to think about it, uh, they're increasingly convinced that, that the near-death experience was absolutely without a shadow of a doubt real. So the near-death experiences 
are nothing like hallucinations, speaking medically right. and as a near-death experience researcher. Now, is there, have you found any commonalities in terms of altered brain chemistry when the people do return or do return to life? Is their brain altered? Do they have certain levels of morphine? Or are there, is their brain chemistry uh, consistent? Um, with yeah, you know, brain chemistry, measuring that, it's the brain is, of course, you know, confined in our skull, and there's really not any medical tests where you can test for, quote, brain chemistry, unquote. I mean, that that's, sounds like a little bit like an urban myth. What we do know is that after people have a near-death experience, there's very consistent observations in what we call after-effects. These are the changes in their values and beliefs that occur with time. But nobody has really convincingly, at least to me, demonstrated that there's any chemical, uh, electrical, anything that's really definitely measurable in people that have had a near-death experience that is different from people who had a close brush with death but did not have a near-death experience. We have done a show previously on something called ayahuasca, and ayahuasca is uh, – one of the nicknames is called the vine of death. And when you ingest ayahuasca, you get an influx of DMT, and it allows the brain to perceive different knowledge information. So people have a very profound spiritual experience where they actually leave their body, and they're able to go into different realities wake, like in a waking-like consciousness. And I'm wondering – when somebody's having a near-death experience or they are close to death, do they have an influx of DMT within their brain? And could enough DMT in that person's brain in a waking state bring about some vision similar to that of a brain that is shutting down and that of a person who is you know, who's temporarily dead? Uh, the short answer is no. Details to okay. follow. So here's the bottom line. If... if <laughs> Uh, if the brain, if anything, chemistry, electrical activity in the brain, any of that had anything to do with near-death experiences, then obviously if you were under general anesthesia and coded, your heart stopped, then obviously you could not possibly have a near-death experience, right? Because you're under powerful anesthetics that shut down your entire brain electrical activity and any possibility of chemistry, electrical activity modifying any potential conscious experience, Right. Right. Well, answer that. You can't. I have a large number of people that coded. Their heart stopped while under general anesthesia, and they have not only do near-death experiences occur under such circumstances, but they're typical, and they're like all other near-death experiences occurring under all other circumstances. There's absolutely no shred of evidence in my research that chemicals, electrical activity, or any functioning the physical brain that we understand has anything to do with what's described during a near-death experiences and anesthesia near-death experiences are about the best example. And again, we're not talking about a small number. Gosh, I'm probably up to 60 or 70 near-death experiences that occurred under uh, adequate general anesthesia. And that there's Jeez. no way DMT or any other chemical that you could possibly name could possibly account for a near-death experience under those circumstances. Okay. Well, what about people who have these incredibly vivid dreams where they travel and they're, I mean, they're, they're just as real as waking reality? What, what is the comparable difference between somebody who has an incredible dream where they do go to a heaven or hell-like state and somebody who actually has a near-death experience? You know, that's How, a, I mean, well, that's a great question. I I'm, I'm probably know about as much of that as anybody on the planet because <laughs> I have other websites. Another web website is called OBERF.org or Out of Body Experience Research Foundation.org, in which we encourage people to share these remarkable 
uh, lucid, amazing dreams. And so as a result, I've literally had thousands of experiences shared on that website as well. So I'm in a somewhat unique position where I can compare near-death experiences. Again, I've received over 4,000 of them with literally thousands of people that have shared on the other website, which the significant majority are dreams. So what I can see is, by and large, you can tell subjectively, qualitatively, by the elements of the experience, uh, one from the other, if you look over large numbers, and obviously I have. However, the intriguing, the exciting thing is there is a little bit of overlap. Near-death experiences are ultimately, if you want to get down to the real cause, it's not DMT, they're profound spiritual experiences. And when you have occasionally these profound dreams with very, very lucid, very detailed uh, very clearly, there is some uh, well, some percentage of those that clearly cross over into that realm of being real, profound spiritual experiences. I think many others are just uh, those rare, unusual dreams that people tend to remember, but not all of them. And that's where this kind of research gets very interesting, where you, you see that overlap between some of these vivid, highly lucid, highly spiritual, uh, spiritual content dreams and near-death experiences. Well, have you ever found it interesting or can explain why when somebody does have a near-death experience, they seem to have control of their five senses. They seem to be able to touch, hear, and those feelings seem to be enhanced. And I'm curious as to why they would even have those senses if they were dead, if they no longer had a physical body. What is the overall drive or, or riding consciousness that is giving them the illusion that they do have those senses if the brain no longer functions, if they're no longer one with the body? Yeah, wow, great question. We have like maybe less than 10 gustatory sensory experiences, which is taste. Uh, tactile is a little bit, you know, well, quite a bit more common. Uh, visual, obviously, extremely common. Uh, auditory, extremely common. Uh, olfactory, that is a sense of smell, far less common. So senses don't seem to be operating the way they are in the physical body. Uh, the one thing near-death experiencers are almost unanimous on is that they're really in a near-death experience, not in a physical body. They're really in something that is transmaterial, non-material. And so while there seems to be some, some senses that they're aware of that's analogous to our earthly physical senses are different. Take vision, for example. Very commonly, near-death experiences describe vision in 360 degrees. And that means they can see in front of them, behind them, right, left, up, down, and can absolutely perceive everything in those directions simultaneously without any problem. In fact, we talked about the lady I had interviewed who was completely blind from birth that had a near-death experience. That's what she described, 360-degree vision. And it's not unusual near-death experiences, and it's just something that's uh, you know, obviously hugely different from what we're familiar with in our earthly life. And so, well, I think there's some... Uh, I, you can draw analogies to human senses. I think they're significantly different. Hearing's uh, different in near-death experiences than earthly life, and really, pretty much, especially for the deeper near-death experiences, while you can draw some some association or some uh, some, you, you can point to earthly senses and say it's like that. What's going on in near-death experiences seems to be quite a bit different. I'd like to know: Can we switch roles for one second? And yeah, sure. can you? convince me that near-death experiences are not real. If you were going to argue against near-death experiences and you're going to argue that it is not possible, what arguments would you use? What do you think are the strongest arguments that a skeptic can use against oh, near-death 
What a great question. You know, my wife's a lawyer, and she's heavily involved in this research, too, and I've, I've asked her that. Look, you're a lawyer. Lawyers argue. Come on. Give me your best argument against near-death experiences. And Jody was absolutely not amused. In fact, she was irate as she responded, you know I can't respond factually. You know I can't respond you know, like a skeptic that really has some legitimate, reasonable argument against near-death experience. She says a lawyer... Uh, if I were to come back, I would just try to argue in some way, grease around the facts, or try to uh, obfuscate what, what the blatant reality of near-death experiences is. But I would have to say, uh, wow, that's good. And I've studied this uh, extensively, and I've always put myself in the role of the skeptic. What's their best argument? What would you say? Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the uh, – and again, they're, they're just simply poor arguments, but probably the best argument skeptics have is – there's non-near-death experiences that, that seem to overlap what occurs during a near-death experience. In other words, as we discussed earlier, you can have that very rare dream that seems to be entirely, in, or at least substantially, NDE-like in its content. You may have that occur under a variety of non-life-threatening events, and that's about the best I could do as a skeptic, whereas the obvious and blatant argument is that near-death experiences are a subset of spiritual experiences. And as you would expect, spiritual experiences can occur in circumstances other than a close brush with death. Wow. And, you know, there are a lot of people that you mentioned earlier that are given this option saying, you know, you got to come back to Earth. Yeah, you have to go back and return. I'm uh -huh. just curious, but do you find that a majority of the people who come back or shall we say a little bit on the um, annoying side, do you think that they're asked to come back to Earth because maybe heaven needs a break from them? <laughs> That's good. Uh, no. <laughs> Here, but, okay. I'll tell, but I'll tell you what I have observed. We're, again, we're not talking about a small number, many, many, probably over hundreds, <laughs> hundreds. So here's, here's what I've observed based on uh, evidence and actual observations of people that shared their indies. Um, when people have a choice, first of all, most people in a near-death experience don't have a choice. They're just automatically sent to their earthly life. You know, you get into the many scores or hundreds of experiences I've reviewed where they do have a choice, and they talk about either staying in this unearthly, often called heavenly realm, or returning to to, to Earth. Uh, and, and there's often other beings with them in this unearthly realm, and there's often a great discussion about this. And the great majority of people that are having near-death experiences do not want to return to their earthly life. Now, now think how fascinating that is. Everything they've known, their friends, family, loved one, everything that's been familiar in their background up to what nearly killed them has been their earthly life. And yet, the unearthly, heavenly realm is so filled with peace, love, they so have that sense that that's their real home, they don't want to return to their earthly life. Uh, what's interesting is... When they do have to make that decision, what seems most persuasive is uh, that they return often for relationships, loving relationships, to learn, especially family relationships, or to experience, to have experiences that are unique on our earthly life. I, I, I essentially never have had the sense that heaven says, geez, you're a loser. Get out of here. In fact, I've never, I've never had that sense. That, that's great well, news for me. I could, <laughs> be the, I could be the first. There's always going to be the if you have a near-death experience, call me back and tell me what happened. Hopefully, they I will. They're, they're like they're still like no, we're still on hiatus from you. Still, 
What have you found to be some of the common qualities and traits of people who've had a near-death experience where they've gone to hell or they've had a very uh, traumatic experience? Oh, so the hellish realm. Yeah, that gets into the realm. Uh, Near-death experiences, uh, occasionally, a few percent can be frightening. And sometimes that fright is just due to uh, elements of the near-death experience that most people wouldn't be considered frightening. For example, we had a person who was coded while they were in an ambulance, had a near-death experience, their consciousness was above the ambulance, and angels appeared. Sounds beautiful, right? Wonderful? Mm-hmm. Well, they, the angel scared him, so he was batting at them. He was frightened. It was a frightening near-death experience. I think most of us are going, sheesh, you know, I'd love to see some angels. But that's, you know, people are people. But what is truly objectively frightening is hellish realms. Yeah. And I have, of course, since we have so many near-death experiences, I've studied 26 of these experiences that were very solidly and convincingly hellish near-death experiences, classic hellish imagery, uh, not so classic at other times. What's in, and, of course, what's intriguing to me is, is I, I study these very carefully. Who are these people? What do we know about them? What's their background? Uh, the survey that we ask our near-death experiencers to fill out has over 100 questions, so you learn a lot about the person from Amazing. a demographic, etc. cetera, th- uh, element. And what's intriguing to me is even in this group of, of hellish near-death experiences, I might add the largest ever studied, I can't really find any correlation between them, who they were, belief, religious belief, lack of religious belief, social, antisocial, um, you know, attitudinal situation, you know, cause of death. It, it just seems to be random. And yet the remarkable thing about these hellish near-death experiences is that a lot of these folks come back and say, hey, that was the experience. I needed to learn something, confront something about myself, grow. It's the only way I could have been reached to really make some changes in my life that really made a positive change and made me a better person for the rest of my life. So there's always that silver lining, even in the dark cloud of hellish experiences. Wow. It's pretty, and in your study of near-death experiences, what have been some of the common qualities that you've, or common things you've heard about who God is. And I'm just curious if m- people have sensed or said that God is something that they feel within themselves, presenting presenting to themselves an external being, or God is something completely separate from them. Um, good gosh, that's a good question. Are you aware that yeah. my next book coming out in a few weeks is called Evidence of God, where I studied 277, yeah, 277 near-death experiences that were aware of or encountered God during their near-death experience. Um, I I see some very striking patterns in this book, and I I go into great detail on that in my next book. Um, What seems to be, first of all, no question about that, God is real. God is very consistently described. God, sometimes people, they struggle with the word for saying, wow, it's just so much more than, than an English language word could adequately describe. And yet, we really have that sense not that God is a distance apart from us, uh, sort of uh, that that sort of being aware of us from some vantage point far from our earthly life, we really get overwhelmingly consistently in near-death experiences that God is with us, a part of us, uh, it literally uh, a part of our daily lives, a part of who we are, and, and, and us literally in some real sense a part of God. So we really have that connection with God far beyond what I would have thought when I started this research. I mean, it took me a while to really... And dozens and dozens and dozens of near-death experiences describing the same thing before it sunk in. 
we are far closer to God and God far more a part of us than we could have possibly imagined. And for people, there are some who say, well, the way to get to God is you, you join a religion or you, you take on a faith. Does that have any impact on a person's ability to arrive at a safer place when they die? I mean, is that is being part of an organized religion, does that kind of give you like a training wheel or kind of give you an easier leeway to get to a celestial type place if you believe that you are following the rules of that particular faith? And you say, listen, I followed the rules, so I have an expectation I'm going to arrive someplace celestial as opposed to somebody who doesn't follow any type of religion. Yeah, let me tell you a near-death experience account I quote in my next book, again, due out in a few weeks. There was a person who was in the presence of God and asked God very directly, what is the true religion? Uh, I'm paraphrasing. And God showed this individual a vision, a vision of a mountain. And on this mountain, there were many, many people all climbing different sides of the mountain. They weren't aware of each other. It was a very different path for each direction up the mountain. But as God made clear to the person having the near-death experience, they're all going to the same destination. And they said, that's like religions on earth, many paths to the same destination. Wow, that's amazing. And I see your book right here. The book is called God and the Afterlife, the Groundbreaking Evidence for God and Near-Death Experiences. It comes out June 28th, but we'll, we'll love to have you on the show prior hand uh, to discuss the book and really go through it. We just have... Yeah, um, it'll it'll, pro- it'll probably be a New York Times bestseller, like my last book. So, yeah, stay tuned. There, it is a Good. very, very powerful book. Good. And the final question I have for you is, what drives you? Why are you so passionate about this? And it's actually a two-part question. Why are you so passionate about this? And what would you say would be the, the three most profound insights you've had over the course of your entire career in doing this work? Oh, yeah, that's good. Uh, I'm passionate about this because I believe this. I mean, me and Jody here have studied this for for years, gosh, about 17 years now, and we get that this is a very significant, important thing that we need to share with humanity. We're hoping that this is going to serve as a way for people to understand that that these types of spiritual experiences can occur around the world, uh, and they're basically, if you will, equal opportunity experiences, and maybe this can serve as a catalyst for world peace as people realize we have this common bond, even as we uh, seem to fixate on the differences we have among people around the world. So there's a real hope for world peace and dialogue that, that with this work that never existed before. But uh, that was an interesting question. What are the three uh, – can you repeat that yeah. again? Yeah, what are the three most profound insights that you've had? I mean, you've been doing this work for so long, and there are others. So I guess you're curious. So I didn't know, like, what were the three, sure. you know, lessons or insights? You're like, oh my God, you know, yeah, really one, of... yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. God, you're good. Yeah. Number, number one from yeah, my uh, uh, first book, Evidence of the Afterlife: The Science of Near-Death Experience. I was absolutely astounded as I did the research as how profound the evidence is for the reality of an afterlife. Wow. I'm not going to die. You're not going to die. No person listening to this is going to die. We have an afterlife, a wonderful afterlife, and that's our heritage. That was huge. Secondly, with the new book coming out, I was blown away. I had no idea how in near-death experiences how strong the evidence was for God. Wow, again, I don't know how you'd argue against the evidence I'm going to have in my book. It is so strong. So there's a God. There is order. There is uh, love is the, the power of the universe. I mean, there is that being 
that cares for each and every one of us far more than I would have imagined. So there you go. That's number two. And I think number three is I go through my research, you know, increasingly aware how important it is that I share this with the world. I mean, this seems to be, even though I'm a very, very busy full-time physician, this seems to be a very important life, part of my life calling. Uh, you, you can't really know the kind of things that I know, that Jody know, that we see in thousands of near-death experiences. You, you see all that, and yet you, you really understand deep down that you know, it's good for us to we know this. Jody and I understand this. But it's so important to share this for the world. It is literally an act of love, and that becomes a very important direction in my life. Okay. Well, Dr. Jeffrey Long, I want to tell you that this is a really great interview. We're so happy to have you. To learn more about Dr. Jeffrey Long and his amazing research, please go to the website, nderf.org. And we are going to have him back, if, he, uh, if you'd like to come back, to talk about his other site, the Out of Body Experience Research Foundation. I, I'd like you to check this out as well, even though it's not directly affiliated with the near-death experience, but oborf.org. It's a, um, I can't wait to go through this site. Dr. Long, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, this really is a fan- great insight. This is a fantastic interview. Let's uh, talk again sometime. This was great. Joining us now is Mr. Peter Anthony. He's a producer, international psychic, paranormal investigator, contributing writer for several spiritual magazines across the country. He is author of Keymaster and Numerology Life Coach. He calls himself the Accidental Prophet, which I resonate with because I'm the accidental child that was born. So we can learn more about Mr. Anthony by going to his website at theaccidentalprofit.com. Mr. Anthony, welcome to the program. Can you please tell us about your near-death experience? Well, it happened on November the 11th, 1987. I had let something very simple go in terms of misdiagnosis, and on November the 11th at a rap party uh, for CBS, I ended up being rushed to the hospital, and at that point in time of, of where we were, uh, in terms of consciousness, I was social profiled. I didn't know I had tuberculosis and or Crohn's disease. And um, the admin clerk thought I had AIDS in the final stages of AIDS, so they refused to check me in. And I had a friend who kind of threw a temper tantrum there, a producer friend of mine. And um, uh, I, they finally admitted me in, and uh, the nurse that was uh, reeling me in decided to run and push me in the corridor and left me there basically to bleed to death. So. It wasn't, Jeez. I think, until about... Healthcare yeah. system. I'm sorry? That's horrible. Healthcare. Yeah. yeah, well, back then, and you know, the, and even to this day, I mean, you think of the Abdullah play a couple of years ago, that's just where we were at the time. You know, so much media hype, and people were afraid, and, you know, myself and so many other people were just basically being treated like we were, you know, like we had leprosy. And so that night, unfortunately, was my night to, if you will, clinically die. At 11, 11 p.m. for 11 minutes on November the 11th in room 11. So wow. that um, <laughs> that's, got, that's I'm sure there's some meaning behind that. That's kind of uh, unusual. Yes, it was. Well, I mean, for those who study numerology, you, you'll understand the 11, 11. So for me, not knowing at that time what I was about to go into, uh, it certainly was one of those things in my life that changed everything. And so that night, uh, unfortunately, by the time they got me into OR, I had uh, a perforated viscous. I had bled for, what, almost two hours, and it was basically too late. So, um, you know, by the time I – I think by the time that they were able to hook the IVs in, um, you know, my veins had collapsed, and it was just a rather difficult process, and that's when I clinically passed. 
that night at 11, 11 p.m. So um, something I would not want to do again, but, you know, on, on, the, on the flip side of that, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it changed my entire life. So what happened during your, your death? Did you go through the, the light tunnel, see some old friends get the light? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, yeah, I, I refer to it as, as the bullseye. I mean, some call it the tunnel. I mean, it, it began to appear in the operating room the first time I – uh, I, I wasn't una- I was certainly unaware of what I was experiencing. You know, um, at that time, as I said, right before I passed out, I began to see this rotating circle, and uh, some people from the other side um, that I recognized, not in this lifetime, but in previous lifetimes. I began to see people from from period uh, pieces in my life that I just identified. You know, my mom, my uh, teachers. Uh, you know, just it was just the most bizarre, I think, event I think I could have experienced. It wasn't until I went through the tunnel that my uh, current, uh, I guess, 1987, my current family, those that had passed, and my sister and, and uh, you know, teachers and people I had completely had no idea had passed, uh, began to appear to me and welcome me in this rotating circle, this rotating tunnel. And going through that tunnel, for me, it was a matter of seeing what I call these quantum physics codes, these you know, 1111-222-333-444-999, all these mathematical codes along with sound and color uh, began to be a part of my, uh, I guess, the rotating circle or the bullseye. And for me, going through this and being agnostic, I, I began to comprehend all these quantum physics. I'm certainly not a math genius by any means to this day, even though I do numerology. But at that point in time of my consciousness going through, I remember it was as though I was downloading all this information and I got it anew. So it, it was one of the most remarkable times in my life. And so during your experience, did you feel completely at ease? Did you feel any judgment uh, during your experience at all? No, I mean the most, and you'll hear so many of us who pass, uh, uh, you know, uh, on our near-death experiences. But the first thing that you feel is a sense of peace. I mean, you know, and then you, in, in this piece, you are just completely surrounded as you're spinning through this rotating tunnel, love and kindness and compassion. I mean, it's truly, it, it, you know, all of us have described this tunnel, and it's just you can't even begin to, to, to do, words don't do it justice. It's just peace. I mean, imagine, you know, sitting at a, you know, on your favorite beach and just watching the, you know, the the ocean just brush against your ankles or your feet, and you're just sitting there in awe, and, and it's just a, a state of bliss. I mean, we'll multiply that ten times, ten times, ten million, and that's what you feel. And, of course, there is no judgment. That's what I learned on the other side. There is no judgment. I think we, as people on this planet, you know, our leaders and, and uh, who have put us in these categories, or, if you will, these factions of of, you know, black and white and Catholic and Jew and, and, and atheist and agnostic, you know, there is none of that on the other side. There's nothing but spirit. And in that spirit, you feel love. There is no Muslim. There is no, there is nothing. It's just spirit, your essence of love. And if there's a message I'd like to get across to your listening audience, that is it. It is imperative that we understand that concept because, as I said, for century after century after century, we've been all put in categories, and those categories do not exist. Uh, Only love exists. So, I'll tell you, what you just said, I think it's, it's a lot of it's positive and it's negative one way. I think positive is like, okay, great, you know, dead, you know, life, love, wonderful. The downside is that I was so hoping to watch all these evil, slimy politicians burn in hell. I was like, are you telling me that's not going to happen? Are we going to be able to see it in any capacity? Did something happen to those people? Did they come back as, like, you know, leeches in the next life? We can stomp on them? 
Well, I don't know so much that they come back as leeches as much as they do come back. And for everything that we uh, that we um, that we put out there, we get back in the next lifetime. Okay. You know, it's funny. I was having this conversation today. I mean, I, I'm not trying to to you know to, to speak ill of certain people on the planet, and that's not my my point. That's my point. But have you ever just seen? Yeah, but as you ever seen someone on on an example, I'm just no judgment here, just an observation. But I learned on the other side. But sometimes when you see someone, what I refer to as people who are just down and out, people who are just sitting there on the street, sometimes homeless people, sometimes handicapped, sometimes not. I mean, but it's just you've seen people who just their their spirits are just left them. But I learned on the other side that oftentimes these are people who have just abused um, their lifetimes and they've come back. Uh, to struggle in this lifetime, and their point is to come back and find the very best in life as they can. You know, so I, I let me give you an example. I met a woman that was in a wheelchair, and despite all of her handicap and her and her, you know, the, the, how she got in that in that situation through a car wreck, she was the most positive person I ever met. Just amazing. And so she was an example of someone who really understood what I refer to as the consciousness of love, where you see some other people, you, you know, I say, you know, I don't care what you say, what you speak, what you know, what they don't know. They just don't get it. And so we keep coming back over and over and over until we get our, our soul energy right. So if those who do the what I call the worst on this planet uh, oftentimes come back and balance out in the next lifetime, that I know for a fact. Why do you have to keep on coming back, though? I mean, I just don't understand why. If there's all this peace and love on this side, why do you have to come back? And also, this idea that, okay, what you do is considered, quote-unquote, evil, isn't evil a human nature? Isn't that something that's devised through, through well, human nature? Well, you know, it's a lack of, of love. I mean, if you have to really break it down, or, you know, greedy consciousness, or just unconscious. And so I think, you know, we don't know. I mean, it's such a complicated subject. But to break it down in, in, in simple terms, it's like, you know, it's the law of karma. And that's what I learned on the other side. Now, you're talking to someone who didn't believe in anything. You, you live, you die. I was agnostic. Um, I didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't believe in Christianity. I mean, to me, it was just kind of a, a bunch of men making up stories. And that, that's not what I saw on the other side. What I did see on the other side was, as I said, we all, well, our actions, whatever we do, when you see your life review, you don't go in with judgment as much as you say, gosh, you know, I could have done better here i could have done it much better and so i think for me when i came back and, and here's the, the drama of it all i came back and i lost my vision you know i was given three months to live i was in a wheelchair you know i had this will to live i wanted to make a difference on this planet and you're talking to someone who stuttered so i had to overcome all these medical mishaps these misdiagnoses if you will and come back and you know would i do it again no but if i had to and i and to where i am today yes i would because for me, it's what I came out of with, and I have this amazing appreciation for life. So and that's what's missing. You don't yeah, have your that's sight? What's I'm sorry? You're, you're blind right now? You don't have your sight? No, 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 no. I, I was. I lost my vision due to all the medical misdiagnosis, oh, wow. and I had this hyper, uh, I guess, uh, sensitivity to all the drugs that were feeding my body. And I just did not respond. Not if, I did understand at the time what it was. But I think for many of us who come back as from, uh, from experiencing the other side, we, you know, we, it's like an adult coming back in a baby's body. You just don't want to give your baby you know, just these, in, these toxic medications. You have to treat it accordingly. And uh, so I had to learn how to basically take care of my physical body and, uh, and, and, and heal myself, if you will. And uh, so I, I did so. But going back to your original question, I don't look so much as there's evil as much as there's just a lack of love. 
And when there's a lack of love, it's just an unconscious soul that's just kind of just blurring through life. Mr. Peter Anthony, producer, international psychic, paranormal investigator. I want to thank you so much for sharing your near-death experience with us. You learn more about Peter Anthony by going to his website at theaccidentalprofit.com. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mr. Anthony. Thank you. Joining us now is Miss Laura Lynn, the angel reader of Miss Lynn by going to her website at angelreader.net. Miss Lynn, can you please tell our audience about your near-death experience and how it changed you? Okay, Ryan. What happened was back in back in after high school, I was having a real severe issue with life, and I before that point even I was very suicidal. I had a deep, deep depression, just very despondent and not enjoying life at all. I did seem to mask it with alcohol and drugs, and did a lot of the things that kids do, you know, to get out of get out of their funky times of life, but I just didn't seem to find any pleasure in anything, and I got to a point where I had it. I just had it. So this was my third suicide attempt, and I guess I made it a really um, serious uh, direction, wanting to, to wanting to pass on. So what happened was I had an apartment. I, I locked myself in there and drank and took a, took just a many many different types of pills and you know that was it and apparently during this I was in a blackout at this time I did call my mother and told her what I did so maybe there was somewhere in there that I still wanted to still wanted to live I don't know but I talked to her explained to her what was happening well my father was the fa- he was the police I mean the fire captain of the area of the city and he was called immediately, you know, to, uh, to tell what was going on and say there's an emergency situation, we got to go there. Well, my dad did not want to be there to find me dead, so he asked that the other uh, fire department, <clears throat> you know, of the other the other people that worked there to go ahead and take care of this, and they had to wait. My mother, nobody could get in there, nobody they had to wait for a police to break down the door and they did find me, you know, passed out and I was passed out for quite some time. But I don't remember talking to my mother, but I do remember something pretty remarkable. And I believe this was in between the time that I was actually in the apartment to the point where I was in the hospital. Cause I do remember seeing the, some of the, the the walls and some of the effects of the hospital and the room when they got me there. What happened was I was confronted by an angel, and she told me that I had a choice to make. And she told me that I was going to either go with her, which would be fine, but if I did go there, she promised me that I would always have a longing because I did it finish what I was really here to do. And she also told me that if I decided to stay, it would be hard. It wasn't going to be something easy, but that eventually I would become very happy and eventually I would be able to help many people on the journey. And, you know, she said, I'm not going to make the decision for you. This is your decision. I'm here. Go ahead. 
when this is happening, do you have any idea of where your location is? Are you kind of somewhere between the now and the hereafter? And you, wh- how would you describe this angel? All right. Well, what I would describe as the angel is just exactly how I met her the first time I saw her when I was a child. It was a, lot, it was a vibrating energy of uh, almost a pulsating um, music, musical note. And uh, it was, it's beautiful. Like, um, it's, it's hard to, hard to say it's music, but yet that's the only way I can explain the tone. And the color is much more vibrant, was much more vibrant than anything else that I could really attach to in this plane, in the earth plane. And a lot of pastels, uh, vibrant, but yet so- soft hues at the same time. It was, a, a, almost a feeling, a color that you could touch and feel. Okay, so at this point, do you know where you were? Do you think you, you were kind of like in heaven or kind of an outskirts of heaven? Did it give you an idea of exactly where you are at this point? Well, this is where it gets very odd because I do remember seeing around me, around the peripheral, the white walls, of the sterile room, and I I recall seeing... Um, a black like my, uh, towards my feet the black cot that was like like I was going to be wheeled into another room and I felt like that room would have been the heavens so I felt like she was coming there to greet me and I was still on earth but I was right on that edge now ultimately why did you decide to come back I don't know I just remember hearing something about or feeling it deeply in my heart that there really was something I was supposed to do. And I didn't know exactly what that was, but I always felt very a strong conviction in my heart to reach out and help people, whether it was politically, you know, or if it was just people in need, whatever that was, that longing seemed to tether me here. And she mentioned that I would be able to help people, and that just that felt right. Like that's the decision I needed to make. Miss Laura Lynn, thank you so much for sharing your near-death experience with us. To learn more about Miss Lynn, please go to our website at angelreader.net. Thank you so much, Miss Lynn. Thank you, Ryan. Joining us now is Beverly Brodsky. Individual had a near-death experience. You can learn more about her by going to her website at bevbrodsky.com. Ms. Brodsky, can you please tell our listeners what were some of the most compelling aspects of your near-death experience? Oh well, um, I had the whole, I had the whole shebang. I uh, left my body. I uh, was, I was met on the ceiling of my room by an angel, who then guided me through a tunnel um, and at, at the other end, I know you've heard this before, but at the other end of the tunnel was this tiny pinpoint of light that got larger and larger as I moved towards it. And um, the amazing thing is that in coming out of my body and going into this tunnel, I left the third dimensional reality that we're so familiar with. Um, it was like being in a place that was familiar and yet amazing. Um, 
there was no time and no space. And there's a feeling of being home. And um, what were the reasons why you felt so familiar with her being home? Whether did you see people? Did you see past relatives? Did you see angels? Well, I was with an angel, and I met the being of light, who I would consider to be God. And I felt like um, it was a déjà vu. Um, it was like I had already known about um, about this realm, and even the answers I asked, I got to ask the light all of my burning questions. Um, and I remembered that I had already known these answers before, and and I wondered how could I have possibly forgotten forgotten them. So um, it was it was really it was really just um, finding myself back at home with a capital H, like kind of where we came from. I know. Where, when you're having this experience, do you actually come in contact with God, or do you feel yes. experience God? Okay. Oh, yeah. And what does God look like, by the way? Well, um, uh, God didn't have a gender, wasn't a man or a woman. Um, it was um, it was this brilliant, beautiful light that was composed of unconditional love, that it was just pouring on 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 me, or I was. Fuming, I was so angry at God. I had, I had my questions. I had to have answered before I could accept that love. And um, um, so, um, it contained all things that ever were, are, or will be, and it contained all of the answers to all of the whys that we ever wonder about. So was this all-knowing something that you believe that occurs when at the moment of death is do we all gain this information? And uh, if that's the reason, just why would we have to be in bodies and have to, to live the way we're doing now? Why can't we just have this existence that you had? Well, that's a very good question. And But my understanding is we learn through the contrast here in, in the third dimension we learn through um, experiencing things that are not just love and light, or our challenges, um, our suffering. It's really not a random universe. This is all planned for our, our, our greater awakening. And we are, um, the best way I can describe it is we are fractals of God. We contain the whole thing. But it's all a matter of free will. We have to choose to focus on that, that part of us that's connected, that's part of us that's part of the oneness that we really are. And um, um, I think this is like um, life is a grand experiment where we learn uh, the consequences of our attitude uh, in terms of either being connect reconnected to the bliss that we really are or being part of the separate entity which is I feel is myself when I'm in you know a third dimensional uh, mindset but we we can choose to connect and in that way we, we are part of the all 
Ms. Bev Brodsky, I want to thank you so much for sharing your near-death experience. To learn more about Ms. Brodsky, please go to our website at bevbrodsky.com. Thank you so much for being with us and for sharing your story. You're so welcome. Joining us now is Ms. Betty J. Eady. She wrote a phenomenal book that I read when I was a kid called Embrace by the Light, talking about a near-death experience. You learn more about it by going to our website at embracebythelight.com. Ms. Eady, it's a real pleasure and honor to have you with us today. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you. So can you please explain your near-death experience, what happened to you and what you saw? Uh, Yes, this goes way back when I was 31 um, years old in 1973. Uh, I went into the hospital to have a hysterectomy, and complications settled in, and it was during that time that I actually died in my hospital bed and... um, Back in the 70s, of course, there I hadn't read anything or heard anything about, I don't think near-death experience uh, was even a coined phrase yet. But um, uh, it was during that time that I died and experienced something totally unexpected um, from any, <laughs> you know, from anything I had ever experienced or read or even felt or dreamed of. Um, my spirit came out of my body and uh, rose up to the ceiling and I wanted to look back down and I was able to turn and look down to see my body laying there on the bed. Um, It wasn't frightening, but I was very curious as to who that person was laying in my bed. Were you surprised at how good looking you were? Like, oh my... (laughs) I think someone explained to me that when you look into a mirror, you actually are looking at the reverse uh, of what you look like to other people. And and I had never really thought of myself as being attractive uh, at all. So looking down at my dead body... I, you know, I thought, wow, that is me, you know, (laughs) but I'm much more prettier than, you know, I'm prettier than what I thought I was. And, um, but I, but I, I, the reason I wrote about that is because I wanted to share every experience and the feeling that I got from someone that was totally ignorant of death and dying and what to expect from yourself when you're going through it, because who would even care about what you look like, right? Um, and yet, I did. I mean, I, I didn't care about what I looked like, but I was curious about it, and I was surprised by it. And But my first thoughts, um, of course, you know, were not what I would have expected, such as, I'm dead, and now what? Or how am I really dead? You know, I mean, I, none of that will even occurred to me at that at that time at all not really you know it wasn't like i was astounded by it but um i was concerned about my husband and my children and and how they might feel when they found out that i had died and um i wanted to go home uh to see them and i was able to do that uh and another curious thing uh, for me was that I, instead of going out a doorway or even thinking to turn around and go out the door, I glanced at the window and decided to go through the window. Now, why would I think that I had the capability 
of going through the window. You know, these things puzzle me still. I mean, I there's all kinds of thoughts about it, but uh, actually I was um, – uh, I, I didn't even think about it. I just went through the window and traveled home. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought so, you know, and I went home, and and uh, it was uh, quarter to ten. And, and uh, but at yeah. Did you at one point you meet Jesus? Well, I did, but it was only after I visited with my family, which I think is really important for people who have children and loved ones. And then they wonder, how am I going to feel about them when I die? Because it was shocking to me that uh, there were my children, whom I love very much, and my husband, whom I love very much, and uh, I felt detached from them somehow. I just knew that their lives would go on and they would be fine without me. It was just a sheer knowledge, and I can't tell you where that came from. But I was comfortable with it. My youngest child was five years old. Um, believe me, I would never have felt that my five-year-old would be okay without me in his life. Um, but that was my feeling, that everything was going to be fine, you know, for all of them. That it was okay for me to go back to my, go back to the hospital, to my dead body, and, and proceed from there. And I did. And it was through um, that experience that I was taken into a very black place, uh, very, very dark, very black. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't see your hand if you put it in front of you. It was just black, pitch black. But the energy in that black space was sheer love, and it was warm, and it was comfortable, and I felt good. And probably if I hadn't have gone beyond that blackness, uh, I could have stayed there the, for eternities and and loved it. Uh, it sounds I mean, wonderful because you, know, you don't have yeah. to deal with anyone else. I mean, you, Pete, you don't deal with anyone. I would love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet I'm claustrophobic and agoraphobic and all the other things. And uh, to imagine being in a place like that would have been hell itself for me. But it wasn't. And... Um, so uh, it was in that black place that I saw a pinpoint of light that just seemed to come from nowhere and was searching for me like a spotlight. And it found me and drew me into it. And uh, I began to travel into the light. And this is when I saw the most incredible being at the end of the light. And as he stood there and brought his arms out to receive me, a golden halo spread in all this whiteness that surrounded him. And I knew him to be Jesus, which was startling to me after the experience, not during the experience, but after, to even imagine that he would be there or how could he be there for me and many, many, many others, as I later learned, that he often is. And um, when it comes to Jesus, I'm just curious. Was he a white guy? Was he like totally white? Because I know all the depictions of Jesus show him as this big white guy. And I'm like, you know, if you're in the Middle East and you don't, I don't think they had the um, suntan lotion back in the day. So I'm wondering, <laughs> like, wouldn't he have a little bit of a tan? Wouldn't he be like presented as himself as one of those people that um, 
you probably would not want to sit too close to him on the airplane. I don't know. That's just <laughs> well, he was in in what I imagine is his immortal body, not his physical body. So there wasn't a color necessarily on him as it was um, he would be considered a being of light. In other words, light radiated from him and um, from not on him, but from within him. And as he um, surrounded me with his light, I became a part of that light. And uh, But before becoming a part of that light, I could see my light because we are all basically spirit beings returning back to where we have always been. And we, have, we radiate um, this pure light uh, from, our, from our being. But if I had to compare, and I've often done this because uh, I wanted to know how much light I radiated, I couldn't even imagine the wattage if I gave him a wattage. But mine, I could. Uh, in that after I returned and saw a little night light on the little uh, in my bathroom and I, I ran to that light and unplugged it to look to see the wattage and I think it was something like three or seven watts and I thought oh my god that's that that's how much that's that was my light it was hardly anything at all and as I understood it was a part of the spiritual development that I had brought with me from my stay here on earth and uh i was pretty much embarrassed by it all but at this point in time i imagine like when you are in this experience you've seen jesus yes what i want to know is did you think did you find that that was jesus the persona the person who actually was on earth or did you find that that was jesus the um the optimal um, what human beings could be like at their optimal level that Jesus was a representation of, okay, this is what humans could be if they pour unconditional love, and this is the symbolic, uh, Jesus was symbolically uh, what human beings could be. Well, you know, I didn't, um, I, it, it, for some strange reason, I didn't have to analyze who he was. Um, I knew who he was. My spirit recognized him, uh, had a, um, a memory of him. It, it, it wouldn't be um, unsimilar to if you lost a loved one and were to return back t- uh, into heaven and that loved one was to appear to you, you would know them. And um, and that's how I knew him. I knew he who was. And uh, I embraced him and I chastised him, which that part was kind of an interesting um That's pretty cool. Experience. What did you say to him? I, I told him that I was never going to leave him again and said that I couldn't believe him sending me to earth to the environment in which I grew up from and to go through some of the life experiences that I went through. I couldn't believe him doing that, that I would never go back to earth and that um, I never wanted to leave him ever again. And uh, But it was the harshness of my tones to his and he kind of leaned back and and just sounds uh, and I, I hesitated to write about it, but I did anyway because I wanted to keep it pure. But he just kind of leaned back and and had this incredible chuckle, uh, you know, like you're 
probably if I could put words in his mouth, it would be like, yeah, right, as if you had any control over that, you know. Doesn't it, it make you upset? It's like, well, what's the point no, of having no. free will? It's like, hey, you know, I, <laughs> I was, oh, free will, free will. Well, hey, what if I want to hang out free here? Free will. Yeah, free will. Well, all of that I learned later. Um, that our journey here on Earth is not just by happen chance. I mean, it's it's actually choreographed um, through our desires. What we need to learn individually, uh, you know, all under the uh, with the knowledge of God and His will for us, and we accept or we reject or we tweak it or we whatever. For instance, uh, the more a person um, is given here on earth, the more they must sacrifice. And so there actually is a a handicap that each one of us will come here with. And um, it handicaps us. It could be anything. It could be impatience. It could be, um, you know, uh, jealousies. It could be whatever that we have to struggle up against in order to achieve our ultimate goal, which is to acquire the attributes of God and that is what our growth is is primarily about and that uh, coming to earth we are here to learn to love under the most often horrendous um, situations and this is why we have a lot of divorce this is why we have well just you know a lot of prejudice this is why we have a lot of the challenges that we have because we need to learn to uh, to love in spite of all these things, not put up with. No one needs to be a doormat, but we must learn to to love and to come to understanding of every experience that we have ever had. And also, we can only really do that, I think, when you have some understanding of it's going to get better when I leave here. Because you take back with you. Now, when I go back, I am hoping that my light has certainly going to shine a lot more than three to seven watts. Um, That's the knowledge, the pure knowledge that that you acquire through all of the gained attributes of God. And I hope I've acquired a few more. That's that's really wonderful and peaceful. And I guess this is where we stand in total contrast. Because I hope that when I leave, I actually have provoked God enough to the point where it's like, you know, I think we're good. I think we're finally going to take out humanity. <laughs> we're one step closer. I'm open. I'm kind of well, pushing. I'm pushing. I, I seriously. Well, I you you just might. But you know what? Here's the deal. I met. Um, I, I didn't meet this man, but I met his widow and um, uh, Charles Camp, uh, a paleontologist out of Berkeley. Um, uh, university. I mean, he discovered one of California's first dinosaurs. I mean, a very famed man. He died in the late 70s, I understand. But um, during the, you know, his life, he, as a scientist, he would go on the air with um, Christians and argue the point that there just ain't no God. I mean, that was his stand. There's no God, and when you die, you die. I mean, he just uh, uh, back to dirt or whatever, but you don't live on or any of that. I mean, he just had that scientific bent. Well, years later, and, and again, he went on on, on radio all just weekly uh, arguing with um, ministers and 
and uh, the, the, just the whole religious uh, group. Uh, and uh, he did a good battle. Well, upon his death in the hospital, he actually ended up with four near-death experiences. And during one of them, he met God after he left this earth. And he, of course, he goes, oh, my God, you know, I apologize. I've spent my life claiming that you don't exist, and here you are. And this is the part that I'm getting at that just absolutely validates, I guess, everything that I learned when I was on my, uh, uh, during my visit into heaven, and that is that God planned his life that way. He said, no, you were meant to do what you did, because what you helped, where you helped, is that you awaken these teachers, these preachers, these ministers, to where they had to find that inner strength, that inner knowledge of, of God, within themselves because they found all the pitfalls that Charles would bring up, you know, all the the arguments. And he told Charles, you did what you were meant to do. Jeez, that's just kind of, I mean, a sobering look at how things are. CD, I have always been curious because I remember I I read your book a long time ago and it made made me think. Yeah, let me ask you, how old are you? I mean, you you made me feel like I'm I'm 76, I'll be very honest. I'm 76. I'm 40. I'm at the point right now where the metabolism is getting slow and, you know, I still. Oh, I, yeah, right. 40. Oh, You're still wait a, a second. This is what happens. Since, since <laughs> I've reached this peak, I just noticed that I like I don't like people coming anywhere near the house. I just kind of it, it's like it instinctually happens where I'm like, stay off the lawn. You know, the patience is going down. I kind of like Matlock right now. I don't know why. Like, this is strange. I didn't like the show five years ago. Now it's starting to hit. I'm like, so something's happening right now. I'm definitely going through the, the grumpy, grumpy phase of life. But, um, mm. <laughs> but I remember reading your book. It was so cool. When I was a kid, I was like, wow, this is it was amazing. I was visualizing everything. And Yeah. Um, one of the things I keep remembering is when you're seeing Jesus you know, after you died, I'm wondering why. Jesus never, there was never a count of Jesus' death experience because you've had these people that have died for like, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, an hour. They come back and they say, yeah, you know, I was dead. I all, this, all these things happened. And Jesus is gone for three days. And I'm wondering, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it gives me reason to believe that you know that men wrote the Bible because I figure that if women were writing the Bible, they would ask Jesus these answers. You know, say, what happened? Give some specifics. Men probably ask Jesus, are you okay? You've been dead for three days. He's like, yeah, fine. Okay, that's fine. We don't, we don't want to take any notes about that. But I right. think of that, you know, why didn't you don't think Jesus talked about his death experience? Explain what happens to him. Did he have to go through a life with you? Did he have to go through what you went through? Well, I didn't ask him. Um, the, the, the interesting thing, too, when you return back to what I call home, because that's where we originated, when you return there, you it, it takes some time, and I have no way of measuring uh, the time there, but as time goes on, you are, um, it's like the scales of your eyes on your eyes are being removed, and you start to remember things. You just know things, so you don't have to ask all the questions. And I did ask Jesus because of of what I learned through the Catholic Church when when I was under their tutelage. Um, that, you know, the the nail prints in his hands and, and everything. And I asked him, and he said something very profound. 
He said that I didn't need to see his pain, the scars. I didn't need to see that. And I thought that that is something I kept thinking back on that. Why why is it that I don't need to see his scars in order to recognize him as Christ? So I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I won't even pretend I do. Um, when I stepped out with my book, it was kind of a frightening experience for me and especially for my husband because, you know, men tend to be very protective over their wives and uh, he didn't want me to meet up with too much ridicule. Um, but uh, I had to because I, I, I know with sheer knowledge that this was given to me, the book was, to share with people, to help them not only to overcome their fear of death, but to help them overcome their fear of life, that God blessed us with life. And, um, and if, we, if we follow the examples of Christ, if we follow the teachings, and yes, it was written by man, and I was even told that during my stay in heaven, that the Bible is not perfect, it was written by man, and that nothing here on earth where men are involved can be perfect. It's an impossibility. I know, because I'm a mess. Right. I, I mess everything up. Right. My men are, tend to do that. No, I'm kidding you. <laughs> <laughs> we do. I can mess up a birthday cake. <laughs> but that's why men need women. I mean, it's and it was amazing to me because I was... Now, this was back in the 70s, and I was somewhat somewhat of a feminist. Um, I had this attitude, you know, that, uh, I mean, to be to die and to go into heaven and be greeted by, by Jesus and, and then to sit before his council of men, that would have been absolutely humiliating and angered me. Was this the 12th council? I mean, was that the 12th, apparently the 12th? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I didn't ask them. I seem to know them. See, that's the, that's the loving part to me, and that is that when we go back, we're not going back and just we're blind to what's going on. We're going to go back and pick up where we left off from. Uh, we're only here on earth to uh, acquire some attributes of God and to learn how to love uh, and to socialize and to take care of things, and we go back. Now, is there other lives? Are we going to be reincarnated? I, there might be a, a few that are reincarnated. It was explained to me to come back as uh, like teachers. But there are other worlds that God created, and, um, and our growth is eternal. We will go on and on and on and grow and experience more life uh, from here on out. And um, so, no, it's not just this world, this earth. Thank goodness. It's not our our only experience. Yeah. During your near-death experience, did you ever become anything less than human where you began to merge in with the light where you realized that you were, no, you were you were a spirit. You were not just a human body. You were not just a human body who kind of walked around. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. When when Jesus embraced me, and this is something I've learned about uh, actually embracing here on earth, um, when he when he reached out and that golden halo surrounded me that was, you know, attached to his, uh, you know, they call them auras, and I, I, I guess that's okay. 
um, it's, I think of it more of an energy field that came out and uh, wrapped around me. And I became, my light blended with his light. It was a, a pure gift of love. I mean, just the joy of, and, and the, the pureness, um, why it is pure is because you can sense and feel uh, that person's uh, essence, their love. Uh, there's no lying or cheating or deceiving there because you do sense everything. And I could I could sense his joy and love and respect for me, and uh, and of course he could sense all my pure love and joy uh, being there with him as well. Later on, when I was taken to a garden, and um, the garden was magnificent, I was able to go to a uh, what where a waterfall was, and uh, of course a river ran from that waterfall, and and I looked over, and it was the first time that I saw my um my my spirit my spirit body and um it was beyond belief it was very beautiful very beautiful now uh now i'm coming back with all the the expressions um you know the adjectives and whatnot uh that we use here on earth but there simply are no words to explain everything that i saw there uh, I can say that something relates to it, but it doesn't explain it at all. It it just it just it was just um, incredible, and um, so and I write about that in Embrace by the Light, and I try to uh, to bring you know some kind of uh, understanding, uh, paint a picture, uh, you know, through the, my earthly expressions. But that's exactly what they are. They're earthly. And so going back to everything here on earth written by man and how it cannot be actually actual or pure. Um, so, so the same thing is with my book. Uh, it is as I can describe it. And, um, but it's so much more. So much more. Nope. As far as I mean, you mentioned the idea that uh, seeing Jesus, it, can people pretty much get to God regardless if they found religion? I mean, is religion so crucial, important? Say, you know, see, see religion is, yeah, religion is really getting a bad rap. Basically, what religion is, is our way of expressing uh, our faith. That's all religion is. It's how everyone of like mind gathered together. Uh, they believe a certain way or they learn to believe that way. And they express their faith uh, through their particular dogma, uh, their teachings. And it becomes comfortable to many of them. And they wouldn't leave that religion for another, for no matter what you said or did. Um, now, that's religion. Faith, as an individual person, uh, having faith in God, is something you experience and you come to believe. But you don't have to have a certain way to uh, pray to God, you know, like doing a cross or being on your knees or standing by an altar, you know, that is just a, um, I, I, a, a some way to put you in tune with the spirit is, is the way I see it. And um, it was so? after, Sorry, go ahead. No, because you, you mentioned something I think it's really compelling that you, based on your experience, you realize that, okay, I accept the idea 
or I believe and see firsthand that I've lived, you know, multiple lifetimes. Yet if you look at most religions, especially Catholic religion, they say, nope, you got one chance. And you're either going to heaven, you're going to purgatory, or you're going right to hell with all the congressmen. So it's like you get three <laughs> different choices, but according to your experience, like you've got multiple times. You think the idea of the reincarnation is a threat to a lot of the religions because it seems like they, they want you to believe that this is it. You get one chance. Well, uh, they'll find out, won't they? Um, because, <laughs> I mean, I really do believe uh, in what I experienced to be true because um, – Oh, well, because I experienced it, number one. Number two, there's another side of me, and probably the greater part of me is um, uh, my dad used to call me Sherlock Holmes because if I, if, if I want to know something, I would check it out. I, I, I'm not one that uh, believes whatever I'm told. Uh, so I've had too many people uh, disappoint me, and so I do live in that. That's, that. That may be one of my demons. I am not one to trust and so I check everything out and um, so uh, you know during uh, the experience after after the experience coming back um, I kept track of everything that was told me some of the things have already come to pass and it's um, that uh, you know confirm verify for me that uh, these special things that that couldn't have happened for instance I was told, now this is back in the early 70s, and I was told that God created not only other worlds, but other universes, uh, and um, that it is ever-expanding, it is ever-growing, just as God is ever-growing. Now, it would be blasphemous, I thought, after coming back and having been raised a Catholic, to be able to tell all these things. And... Um, uh, so I was I was cautious in writing Embrace for sure because I didn't want to um, hurt anyone in whatever their faith their current faith was, but I wanted to open their awareness uh, to expand them uh, to uh, accept things that are going to occur that are going to come into being, such as. I, I, while in this heavenly realm, I saw that Jesus and Judas were best friends. They're buddies? And they were buddies, They made yes. things right. They're like, you know, hey, you know, I know you kind <laughs> they of were, you got me they were but it's all cool. <laughs> it's cool, they you were, know. You were young and wild. They were buddies. They were buddies before <laughs> the crucifixion. Wow. Talk yes, about forgiveness. And, there are people I haven't spoken with because they stepped on my toe five years ago. I, exactly. Wow. Well, if you really look at it this way, Jesus was coming down for a special purpose. He needed to be crucified, and um, the only person who volunteered to do that was Judas. And I told that to my husband, who is a Southern Baptist, and he said, please. Don't tell anyone about that. Don't say a word about that. Well, one night here, a few not too many years ago, he called me. I was out on tour probably, and he said, listen to the news. They just found the book of Judas. Wow. You know, Miss Eda, I have to say, you just put another very bad idea in my head right now. Okay, go ahead. All I right. want to hear this it. What happened is that 
now I know for a fact that I have driven certain people so crazy to the point where they've just completely lost it. And now I realize that I didn't do it because I'm a pain in the ass. I did it because I'm the only person willing to take it on because no one else would accept this responsibility. I took it on. I'm a brave spirit. I'm obviously going to have a higher place in heaven. So that you just justified everything I've done. So thank you very much. Can I, can I add something to that? Yes. Um, when I was in heaven, I met what they call warring angels. Okay. Warring angels. These were angels that were willing to do battle against negativity. In other words, they were not frightened to step forward and to uh, help educate um, all the spirit beings. In fact, we have warring angels that are that that actually guard our world that we live in even right now. Um, people who are not frightened to step forward, but to come with their own convictions, to speak their mind, and uh, to even challenge, like Charles Camp that I told you about earlier. These are warring angels. I would dare say, don't laugh, that you were a warring angel before you came to Earth. Well, I... Jeez... Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I would but never, consider, it, I would never consider myself to be an angel, <laughs> and I need to lose a few pounds before I'm ever going to take off the ground because I don't care if I have four wings. There's no way I'm going to get a few feet off the ground unless I. <laughs> Miss Betty J. Edie, I want to thank you so much. It's a real honor and pleasure to have you with us today, sharing your near death experience, sharing about your lessons. Again, Miss Edie's book, Embraced by the Light, read it when I was a kid. She's also had a couple other great books. She's got a podcast, a YouTube channel. Reach her by going to her website at embracebythelight.com. The CD. Thank you so much. Thank you, and it's been wonderful to be here with you. And I love your sense of humor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes part eight of the Death Show. Special thanks to our heavenly light guest who died, came back from the dead, and did our show. What an honor. We have three more sh- uh, episodes that will focus on near death experiences. We hope you can continue to listen. Also, if the death show has brought you any form of peace and consolation, that is our greatest hope. And we hope that if it's brought you some measure of peace, that you'll share it with other people. Again, thank you so much for listening. And to learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Tooth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com. 